Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions, and tips that actually work, head over to Dr. Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1-800-111-483 or by emailing him, michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. Hi, this is Professor Chapman. Recently we've been doing some Facebook Live sessions where I've been answering questions from the listeners and participants. What you're about to hear now is some audio of those segments and I hope they'll be useful for you. Is IVF painful? Is IVF painful? So, side effects of IVF. So, because you're taking medication that stimulates your ovaries to grow more follicles, your ovaries can enlarge, uh, they do enlarge, And that, for some women, causes bloating, but rarely pain, extremely rarely pain. When it comes time to do the egg collection, there are two approaches in terms of um, pain relief. One is to put you to sleep altogether, which is what we do in the premium services. The alternative is to have it under sedation. And certainly I've seen women suffer pain as the needle goes through the vaginal wall into the ovary when they're still awake. Uh, If you can imagine that the ovary has the same innovation as a testicle, and you can imagine a male having a needle put in his testicle is not going to be very pleased. And I can tell you the same with women, but we do give a strong analgesia if we're going to do it without a general anaesthetic. But for some women, that can be painful. After the egg collection, because we're putting uh, needle holes in the ovary, they can bleed and that blood inside the tummy can produce pain in the first 24 hours or so, irritation of the peritoneal lining. Not serious, probably one in a hundred women need to go to casualty because of the pain. Later on in the cycle with hyperstimulation syndrome, you can get pain. But today, in most cases of uh, IVF, we have avoided doing IVF. There are some regimes which are still used by some of the old-fashioned specialists uh, who have different beliefs to the modern ones where the medication is still predispose to hyperstimulation syndrome. Uh, in Australia, we've halved the incidence of OHSS in the last five years uh, by using different medications that are much safer. And therefore, the pain associated with OHSS is now incredibly rare. The biggest pain with IVF is the emotional pain. When we know that we go into a cycle, even in a 35-year-old, knowing that 50 to 60% of cycles are going to be failures. You don't believe it's going to be you because you're going to be the 40% who are going to get pregnant. But when it happens that you're in the 60%, that is painful, emotionally draining. So in terms of pain, physical pain, rare. Emotional pain, common. Prof, I have a question. Is there pain associated with the injections? The injections are like... Uh, what diabetics do on three times a day basis. They're tiny little needles these days. Uh, they're not intramuscular. They used to be into the muscle. Now they're into the uh, subcutaneous tissue of the tummy wall. Nowhere near as painful as a COVID vaccination. Very few women um, suffer any any discomfort with those injections. Okay, Beck's question is, how many IUIs should I have before I do IVF? I generally draw the line at three. That's because of data from our own research over the years. 
showing that uh, in a 35-year-old woman, I picked that as the sort of average age, the first cycle with IUI has a chance for around 20% per cycle, the second cycle, 18 to 20%, the third cycle, 15%. So it's declining with each uh, IUI cycle. Because what it's doing, I think, those women that are going to get pregnant easily who don't have other problems that we, we can't diagnose are getting pregnant. And that's leaving a pool of women who are increasingly less likely to get pregnant. So I put the limit on at three. There are countries around the world that talk about six cycles. Certainly the Netherlands do that before you can have an IVF cycle if you're under 35. I think that's just prolonging the agony. Question from Bryn. Is DHEA good to use for more than four months? I don't think there's any evidence that does any harm. It's a very mild male hormone. It doesn't do any harm. Does it do any good? In terms of improving egg quality and numbers, possibly in older women over 40, it may make a difference. It's been suggested that six weeks course is, is the minimum you should have before having an IVF cycle or, or hoping it's going to make a difference for natural conception. You know, the evidence is pretty, pretty minimal. There are a couple of very small randomized control trials. Ask the question, do I use it? Yes, I do. When I've had an IVF cycle where we've got a poor response, that's one of the things that I do to hopefully improve the situation. Does it make any difference? Well, again, we go back to some women will do better and some women won't make any difference. Some will do worse the next cycle. And it's probably unrelated to the DHEA, but there is a little bit of evidence. Will I need to be on birth control pills before IVF? Some clinics do it. But in fact, the collection of studies, which is put together in something called a Cochrane Review, it's a, a worldwide database process, says taking a pill before a cycle may be deleterious rather than helpful. I rarely ever use it. Um, what it enables the doctors to do is to time your IVF cycle. And, you know, that's for their convenience and your clinic's convenience. And, you know, sometimes around Christmas, for instance, certainly I've used the pill to control the cycle so that, you know, not collecting eggs on Christmas Day or that you can actually have a cycle during that period. You know, I tr try and avoid it. Um, Bryn says, thank you so much. You're welcome, Bryn. Uh, next question. Do you test the uterine wall to make sure it's receptive? Can you also do a uterine scratch test? There is a moment in time when the lining of the womb is most receptive to an embryo. And for the vast majority of women, probably something in the order of 98, 99% of women, it's a timed event related to ovulation of about five or six days after ovulation. And people have tried to become more sophisticated in working out that receptivity period by measuring genetic markers around about that time in the lining of the womb. A Spanish group commercialised it. We called it ERA. They sold it as a, a breakthrough. They then did a large randomised controlled trial. You know, I've talked about it a number of times tonight, and they've never published those results. Why not? I'm told it showed it made no difference. And they were charging $1,500 for the privilege, commercialisation once again. So I don't believe in doing that test, nor do a number of colleagues from the European country that produced it. A number of my colleagues who work with them have stopped using it because they don't, they're not convinced either. There probably is a group of patients in whom it may be a factor, um, but using hormones, either through a hormone replacement cycle or, or augmenting with progesterone, which is what we do in most IVF cycles anyway, uh, we can control the receptivity time. I doubt that it's a serious thing. Now, does endometrial scratching work? That's another controversy um, in the literature. 
initially there was enthusiasm, then there was one, there's one large study published in New England Journal two years ago that suggested it didn't do any good. And then there have been subsequent smaller studies in particular groups that women who've had recurrent implantation failure where it might work. I'm on the fence. I'm not convinced it works, so I don't offer it routinely. What I do, however, routinely offer for women who have recurrent implantation failure, in other words, they've had embryos put back on two or three occasions, is a hysteroscopy that's looking inside the uterus with a telescope and what, to make sure the lining of the womb, there's nothing interfering with it, scarring or whatever. And then we do a we do do a biopsy, and that's not to check for receptivity, but endometritis, inflammation, and a long chronic infection of the endometrium, which occurs in about one in a hundred patients, and that can be treated and can be overcome. Maybe by doing that scratch, doing that hysteroscopy in a cycle before an IVF cycle, I do some good as well. But that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to check the lining of the womb doesn't have endometritis. And doing the hysteroscopy is to check the uterus is a normal shape and size. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1-800-111-483 or by emailing him, michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.